Russell, my uh, colleagues in faith, far-flung fellow pilgrims, friends and supporters and leaders in the One in the Spirit initiative, prophets of justice and freedom and peace in the name of Christ. It is a joy to be with you at any time. Uh, I feel somewhat self-conscious being here just at Act 5 of a long and a rich conversation. Uh, Canon Russell uh, has kept Bishop Bruce and Canon McCarthy and me apprised, and Canon McCarthy has been right along with you. Uh, but I've read the summer, summer, summaries that others have prepared and compared them to my own um, reading of the presiding bishop's text. And so I feel as though I have been with you, uh, uh, at least in spirit, for we are one in the spirit, despite all of the divisions and separations uh, that are our lot, there is ultimately nothing that can divide us. This is, of course, our faith, uh, no matter what the season. And yet it has been a weird advent, has it not? For, for, for reasons not too numerous to mention, but too obvious to mention. And, and um, by this point in any prior advent in my adult life, I probably would have watched uh, White Christmas once, Elf perhaps twice if grandkids were around, and several versions of A Christmas Carol. Uh, but um, at least until December 14th, that wasn't the Advent spirit that I was in. Indeed, the last movie I watched was called Downfall. Some of you may know it. It is a German film released in 2004. And it depicts the last days of Adolf Hitler and his benighted followers, the days and hours they spent in what was called the Fuhrer bunker in the heart of Berlin. Yeah. And among the characters portrayed in the film is one Gertrude Junge, who at the age of 22 in December of 1942 became Hitler's personal secretary. And after the war, she wrote a memoir and the filmmakers consulted other sources. And the combination of available first person observation of these days in the bunker uh, added up to create uh, for the viewer uh, the, the, the ring and, and the appearance of a grinding and absolutely soul-killing truth. Um, there's no redemption or virtually no redemption in the film. No sentimentality, thanks be to God. And even Gertrude's escape is shadowed with her shame because the film um, is bracketed by interviews that she gave late in life in which in her 80s, she was still grappling with the impossible to answer question of why 
she put up with it, why she stayed, why, why she didn't listen more carefully to the content of the cables and letters she was typing. Now, before I go any further, um, I wanna make something clear. And what I'm about to say about the lessons I've derived from this movie for our common purposes, uh, nobody besides Hitler is Hitler. Nobody beside the Nazis is a Nazi. This is not an argument by implied or explicit analogy. That is the last thing the presiding bishop would have us do with his uplifting text. My point is that the, the utter desolation and cruelty of that moment in 1945 is depicted in the film is the literal polar real life opposite of the way of love and Michael's invitation to the way of love through our faith in Christ. So as circumstances would have it, I had two Advent texts for comparison and contrast. I had, if you will, a laboratory for testing the efficacy of love. Another reason why this dispiriting movie has stuck with me and will for a long time is that these events happened nine years before my birth in a privileged modern country. It is for us who are cousins of our fellow humans, it is a recent event. So um, we must ponder the cause of this and any such immoral, inhumane, genocidal project. And I think all of us are students of history enough to know that there were two principal factors, a toxic, benighted leader with contempt for all people, including the German people, who bragged about his ability to smother compassion. He construed love and compassion as evidence of weakness. They were useless, he felt to the leader. And second, he had a population of ostensibly civilized people who largely embraced scapegoating and genocide and a fraudulent racist myth of national superiority. It happened in our time. It could happen again. Now to happier things, to chapter 11, to the proposition that love and compassion actually work in politics and policy making, in justice making and peace making, the proposition that love isn't for suckers, that compassion isn't a sign of weakness, that leaders in and out of government can use them for God's justice purposes, for the destruction of inhumane racist systems, for the building of the beloved community among us. A brief detour uh, 
in which I'll mention another sometimes controversial name, Mr. Nixon, whom my spouse Kathy and I served for many years. And I'll tell you why I mention him. He was a little bit of a political archetype. Um, he had many decent and praiseworthy qualities. He had dark qualities. And he had in him something I have often noticed in politicians, a fear that his better instincts could be used against him. In politics, there is a certain cynicism that causes one to suppress their better angels. I wouldn't say all politicians are cynical in this way, but many are because they know that there's always someone who, when they look over their shoulders, is gaining on them. So our prophet Michael Curry is pointing us toward a reckless thing, which is to lead at all times with love. He is a modern pioneer of the ancient gospel and resurrection proposition that love works, indeed that love is the only thing that works, and that love ultimately wins. This is a faith proposition, because we see all around us evidence of the vanquishing of love and our better instincts. Because here's the thing, my colleagues in Christ, love won't always work in the short term. It will always cost us something. Prosecuting an agenda of love won't always be easy or pleasant. We'll find ourselves angry, resentful, misunderstood, abused. We'll confront attitudes and speech we may utterly abhor. We'll probably have to give some ground and we might lose. So the questions that I took the liberty of proposing for our small group work are by and large about ambiguity and incrementalism. And incrementalism can often be a hazard at a time when we are battling the worst injustices that beset us. Sometimes half a loaf, loaf is not enough when a person's life is at risk because of systemic racism, hunger, being unhoused. My questions are about love's limitations. My questions are about stumbling blocks we might face or that we might place. Michael also proposes two other things as I begin to wind toward my close. The first is that anyone on the way of love must know themselves. We must identify the values that we hold and stand for and know why they're important to us. Chapter 12 is about mountaintop moments. And among the questions I pose is to invite those who may wish to share yours in the terms which are borderline supernatural uh, that, that Michael uses when he describes that moment in Canuga when all the differences between him and those who were suffering from HIV AIDS seemed to melt away 
and that some power beyond them created a unity among them, which he would never forget. I'll tell you one of mine because I'm inviting you to share yours in small group. It was in Eastertide in the year 2000. Many of you were there at the Los Angeles Convention Center for Bishop Bruno's ordination and consecration. I'd driven up by myself from Orange County and I arrived a little bit late. The lobby at the convention center was completely empty. The Korean drummers were preparing to enter the convention hall and there was a fountain there in the middle of the lobby for reasons that pass understanding. I assume it was a portable fountain that had been put there because Episcopalians like fountains. And as I walked past the fountain, I was, con I was possessed of a feeling of absolute perfect contentment. Um, as I read Michael Curry writing about the moment at Canuga, I thought of this moment. And, and I heard in my heart the message, this is your place. This is your community. These are your siblings. You belong here. Perhaps some reflection of sort of shame-based insecurity about whether I deserved to be ordained. I was then still in seminary and perhaps wondering whether the church was getting it right in my case, but it was beyond that. It was a, it was a Wesleyan warm glow. It was from a place beyond and above. Now, here's the thing. Um, after I'd had five or six years of good ministry at St. John Chrysostom down in South Orange County, I, I sort of had the feeling that, that there was one more thing I wanted to do, but that after St. John's, there would be one more thing. And, and I will confess to you today, my colleagues, that I put my name in for searches of various kinds in various parts of the country. And I got nowhere. <laughs> Zilch, zero, nada. <laughs> Nobody interested. And here we are together. And I remember the warm glow. I remember the feeling of perfect contentment and belonging. And it sustains me each day. The other thing the presiding bishop wants us to do when he stresses it throughout this extraordinary book is understand that, that, that one of the ways to break down the divisions between us and among us is by the sharing of narratives uh, and taking the time it takes to listen and to ask questions and really encounter one another in, in, in the full multidimensional sense of our experience, our being, and our temperament. And, and, and this is also part of knowing one's self. One has to understand one's own narrative. Um, and I'll leave you with this thought because I find that I talk all the time about family. Um, I'm, I'm always talking about a parish family and a diocesan family. And I use cousin language and 
sibling language. It, it comes naturally to me. And, and, and I'm not sure everyone resonates with it, but it happens to be my language. It's the, it's the language that bubbles out of me. And, and the reason I use it, because I know my story and I have uh, lived it and embraced it and accepted it. My own family, my family of origin was small and weird and dysfunctional. And um, each of us has got that. We've got a heritage that we have inherited. Um, we have both our, our temperament, the way that God has made us to be. We have our identity, our uh, orientation, our ethnicity, and we have our family of origin story. And when we prepare ourselves for ministry, we do that integrative work. And it's part of what Bishop Curry wants us to do, to identify the values that are so important to us that we will not hesitate to use them and put them as our sword and shield in the advent conception of those metaphors, to lead with them as we lead with love, because those are the things that really matter to us. So it's knowing ourselves, knowing our neighbor, particularly when our neighbor is different or disagrees, and then deciding how we're going to move forward together along the way of love. Thank you. Um, I, I would like uh, at this point to direct our attention.